Well, good morning, MCC. How are you guys doing? Good, good, good. Hey, if you're here watching us online this morning, whether it's from the comfort of a beanbag chair, or do people still do beanbag chairs? Anybody got, raise your hand online if you got a beanbag chair. Okay, cool, cool. Hey, however you are watching this, whether it's beanbag chair, whether it's love seat so far, or you haven't even got your tail out of bed this morning, you just still got the phone up and you're, you're, you're in there. Look, you're in there. Let's go. Uh, church is happening right now. We are the body of Christ and let's get into this. Today we are continuing in in our series called At War. And uh, man, it's been apparent in this last uh, few weeks and months that we have experienced life on planet Earth. Man, that it just seems like there is all sorts of different things going on. It seems like there is uh, embodied forces of evil that seem like they're coming uh, against us, whether it's things that are going on in our own mind or around us. There is no denying that things aren't perfect, all right? But denying that fact and realizing that fact that those things are not perfect, the reality is it's got to still up to some really good things. And that was evidenced yesterday. Yesterday here at MCC, we had our first ever drive-through trunk or treat. Now, if you don't know this, you're watching online from some other part of the country. One of the things that McDonough, Georgia is kind of known for is traffic. And yesterday, we took McDonough traffic, in Jesus' name, to a whole nother level. It was intense. It was awesome. But here's the deal. We had over 1,200 people come to our drive through trunk or treat yesterday. In COVID, that is amazing. So well done. Uh, all the people who brought candy, all the people who had trunks, all the people who did security for that, all the people who made that event happen, and those of you who showed up at the event, way to go. Uh, I had so many great conversations with people in our community, and maybe you're watching this or you're here today because of that event. We just want to say welcome in and welcome home. We're going to continue in in our series today. We're going to be diving into some, some big, meaty stuff, okay? So I need to pray, and we're going to dive into God's Word for us today. Let's pray together, church. Jesus, we come to you today desperately needing, whether we realize it or not, to have an encounter with you. Father, we gather together like this collectively whether it's online hearing it, whether it's in person hearing it, we gather together because we need to remember that we are not lone soldiers in this battle. Father, I pray that the people who are online see that there are other people engaging with them. I pray that the people who are here in person know that there are other people around them. God, we are in this together. And most important, the most important factor of us being together is we are with you. And we pray now in these moments that you will do those things that only you can do that your power would break strongholds, that your power would awaken uh, deaf hearts and deaf ears, and they would be able to finally hear the truth of your word, and it would change people, Jesus. I believe that change can happen, real change. Not I'm, I tried this for a couple of weeks, and things got better, and then it went away, change. But real change can happen. And Jesus, that's what I'm asking you to do today, through the power of your word and the preaching of your gospel. In your name, amen. So we've been in this series and, and we've been talking about this reality that we have an unseen enemy. That we have what the Bible refers to as Satan or the devil or demons. That there are actually spiritual forces that are coming against us. That we are actually caught in this in-between ground, in this battle between good and evil. And as we've been talking about this, we've dove into God's word and seen that there is actually a battle plan for us to withstand both our own personal flesh desires that make us want to do the wrong thing and this enemy who is at work in the world who is coming against us. 
And if you've got a Bible, we've been diving into that battle plan in Ephesians 6. And if you've got a Bible, you're watching online, pull up your Bible app or whatever, we're going to dive into Ephesians 6. Like I said, this is where we're going to go. This is going to where we start every single one of these weeks. Foundational, kind of the jumping off point. So go to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read this together. Ephesians 6, start with verse 10. And we're going to go all the way down to 14 as we dive into our next piece of this armor of God that he gives us. All right. Ephesians 6, 10 through 14. Let's read this together. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Today, we're going to be diving in to this breastplate of righteousness. So last week, if you remember, we talked about this belt of truth. And we kind of defined truth as God's opinion on anything. What God says about anything is what is in fact true. How this belt of truth was the centrifugal part of the armor of God. It was the first piece to be put on. That it was kind of the core foundational aspect of who we are if we wanted to be soldiers and stand in this fight against the evil that's inside of us and the evil that's coming to us. So this truth, this truth that's found in God's word is key. And from there, he goes to a breastplate. And I don't think there's any... um, Lack of reasons why he went there because at the end of the day, the belt would be the first thing that was put on. But from there, the breastplate would be put on. And this breastplate was the heaviest piece of armor in a Roman centurion's getup. So he would put this on. It would weigh somewhere between 30 to 40 pounds. He would put this on and the belt would actually support the breastplate. So that he was able to keep it on longer and able to maintain that. And as you know, a breastplate in that time, you've probably seen the, the pictures of the, of the centurions and everything else, the, the soldiers. It was usually a big giant piece of metal that was fit to go over this warrior. And what it did is it covered the most vital organs of this warrior. It protected him against the places where if an arrow or a sword or something hit that spot, it would be what would actually kill you and take you out. And Paul, Paul is the guy who is writing this. Paul is writing this from a Roman prison. He is close proximity to one of these soldiers with this garb on. And he sees him and he's walking through this. He's creating a metaphor for us to be able to understand how we can stand firm against the enemy who is after me and who is after you. And so... When we begin to think about this metaphor, we think about the vital parts of who we are, the things that are core and foundational to our heart. And in the Bible, when it talks about heart, it's not just talking about this big fist-sized organ that goes lub-dub-lub-lub and pushes blood throughout your body. In the Bible, your heart is oftentimes, you know, kind of boiled down to who you really are. Your mind, your soul, your spirit. Those are the things when the Bible talks about your heart, that's what it's talking about. There's a verse that I want to show you guys right off the bat. It's uh, Proverbs 4.23. It talks about the importance of, of taking care of and guarding our heart. Proverbs 4.23, it says this. You've heard this verse before. Above all else, 
above all the other things you could take care of and guard. He says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So what Paul understands here is for me and for you, wherever we're at, whether or not we're following Christ or not, we have an enemy against us who is coming after our heart. And again, the Bible doesn't define heart as just this this, this organ that pumps blood and keeps us alive. It defines heart as who we really are. Now, what you need to understand here is there is not just an enemy who is seeking to destroy and come after your heart. The reality is you have two things that are working against you in regards to your heart. First of all, your heart. If you are not in a relationship with Jesus, and before you were in a relationship with Jesus, your heart was deceitful, wicked, and really, really jacked up. And nobody had to really explain that to you. We, we just see that. Nobody had to teach you how to lie. No one had to teach you how to steal. No one had to teach you how to be jealous. You just were. And so you need to understand what's all going on here in this attack against your human heart. One, your heart because of the original sin of Adam and Eve. We inherited a sin nature. That's why no one had to teach you how to do it. Satan knows that. He knows that that's part of your existence in reality as a human. And what he wants to do is to capitalize on the condition of your heart so that the mess that is in here finds its way out into the world out there. And so all, we, can have, we can take a good time and we can want to blame everything bad and wrong and messed up and all the mess and the brokenness that we see in the world. We can just go, oh, that's all Satan. Well, yes, we've been talking about this from the beginning of the series. Every bit of power that he has in the world is because we have given him permission. He has capitalized on the brokenness that was inside of our hearts already to be able to bring those things out into a world into fruition. That's why Jesus... In Matthew 5, 19, he said, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Never give the advice. Never listen to the advice. Follow your heart. It's terrible because those are the things that come after it and come out of it. Okay? So we get our heart. We get the reality that before Christ, our hearts were really messed up. We can understand that. We can understand this idea of a breastplate. It protects the things that are vital. It keeps us alive. But Paul says to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, for a lot of us, that's kind of where we begin to get lost. Like, okay, I get a breastplate. I get it protects some things in my heart. I guess there's an enemy in my heart. My heart's already kind of jacked up and messy. But what in the world is righteousness? Like, if I asked you to explain righteousness to a fourth grade girl, where would you begin? Righteousness. Today, what I want to do is spend the rest of my time helping you understand righteousness. If you, as a child of God, or even if you, as someone who is seeking to understand who God is, who Jesus is, and what does that have to do with you, if we can understand righteousness, it has the power and potential to change everything in this battle that we are fighting. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to lean in today. Today is going to be one of the more deep and thick, some would say meaty messages that I've ever preached as your pastor. Today, this message has set my personal record for Bible verses in a message. All right? I believe that is so good. Because here's the deal. 
I'm, I'm just crazy enough to believe that God's word can communicate the truth of what righteousness actually is way better than I can. And I'm trusting that where my ability to communicate to you what righteousness actually means, that in my inability, Jesus, through his word and how the Holy Spirit will teach you, it will actually make more sense than I ever could. I know most of you um, probably don't listen to this podcast, but there's a guy named Joe Rogan. And uh, he, he does a podcast that has millions of listeners all around the world. And recently, he had a guy named Kanye West, maybe you've heard of him, on his podcast. And recently, maybe you've heard of this as well, Kanye West has came out and went public that he is in fact a disciple of Christ. He's a follower of Christ, that he is a Christian, which I love. Go, I'm all for it. Come on. Praying, 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 praying that the fruit of his decision continues to change the influence in the sphere that he has as an influencer in our society. But as he's on Joe Rogan's podcast recently, he starts explaining to Joe Rogan what expository preaching is. He starts explaining his faith. Again, millions of listeners, Kanye West is there explaining about who Jesus is, explaining about what expository preaching is. He says, you know, that some churches you go and a pastor, he, he reads you one Bible verse and he spends 45 minutes telling you about what he thinks about that verse. And Kanye, in typical Kanye fashion, says, I'm in the entertainment world. I don't need sauce, which I love. And maybe you don't know what sauce is. He's saying, I don't need all the flesh. I don't need you to entertain me with that Bible verse. He says, I want somebody, and this is why he's, he's explaining expository preaching. He says, I want you to take that verse and then use more verses to help me understand what that is. I don't need the flash. I don't need the charisma. I just need to know what God's word says and how it makes my life different. And I, I found myself watching a little bit of that interview just going, Amen. And today, my hope, in the words of Kanye, is to give you a whole lot less sauce and to give you the meat. Now, for some of you, you're used to sauce. And you're like, you know, some of you are the type of people you go to Chick-fil-A and you're more concerned with the sauce than you are with the nuggets. You're like, yes, I got to have the sauce. Anybody else's wife ever made them turn around and go back to the store because they didn't get the sauce? Yeah, um, just me. <laughs> but here's, here's what I want you to know. We're going to go through a lot of scripture. I don't want us to be the type of church and the type of Christians who check our brains at the door. We're going to explain some things. And listen, if you're here and you're in faith, I want you to know that you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's job and role in your life right now is to help you understand the deep things of God. So don't be scared. Don't, don't check out. If you're here and you're, and you're not a follower of Christ, or you're watching and you're not a follower of Christ, understand this. The Holy Spirit may not be working in you right now because you have not put your faith in Christ, but he is still working on you to help you understand these concepts. So dig in, lean in, and we're going to understand today what it means to be righteous and the righteousness we have in Christ. All right? Let me show you a definition. I'm going to give a baseline definition for righteousness today, and we're going to unpack what this means. All right? Take a note. Write this down. Righteousness is a quality of being right in the eyes of a perfect God. Righteousness is the quality of being right in the eyes of a perfect God. Now, what do you, have to, what do you think you have to do to be right in the eyes of a perfect God? The answer is in the question. You have to be perfect. Now, in regards to righteousness... There are two ideas and concepts in regards to righteousness that happen in, the, in theology. Theology is the study of God. There are two of them. And these two concepts of righteousness have divided and created multiple different denominations, things that maybe even you look at and say, that's a totally different religion altogether. That's not even Christianity. But here's the deal. There are two of them. The first is this. It's imparted. You get, the whiteboard is out. Y'all are going to learn today. The 
first is imparted. All right? Or, or wait, sorry, got that wrong. <laughs> Imputed. Second, is imparted. All right? So when we're talking about righteousness, there's two types. There's imputed righteousness, and there's imparted righteousness. Now let me give you guys, again, buckle up, helmet on. We're going to go there today. Here's what I need you to do. I'm going to lay all this out here. I'm going to tell you these things, and you're going to go, I don't understand a lot of that. That's okay. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to piece it out and explain it. But I need to have it up here so you can see it. Again, visual learners, uh, we're going to have it out here. We're going to see it, and we're going to explain it, okay? So when we talk about imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness, they're both different sides of what I believe is the same coin in regards to righteousness. Now, some churches and some denominations would say it's all imparted. Some denominations would go, it's all imputed. And I go, at this point in the service, you're like, I still don't know which one I am. That's okay. Stick with me. We're going to get there. Okay, again, in regards to righteousness, these are both two sides of the same coin. It's not a take this one or take that one. We're going to figure out how they both make us who we are. So when we talk about imputed righteousness, this is the definition I'd give you for what it means to have imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness, take a note, you can write this down, is the righteousness of Jesus credited to the Christian, enabling the Christian to be justified. It's the righteousness of Jesus credited to the Christian, enabling the Christian to be justified. So it's Jesus' righteousness given to you so that you can be justified. Now, just another one of the words. See, I'm going to go from a progress of words you don't understand to words you do understand, but you're going to get the whole picture, and it's going to be beautiful. All right? This is where just if I'd. All right? Imputed righteousness is where we get justified. That's where we're able to stand before a holy God and Him say, it is just and right that you enter into heaven, not because of anything you did right, but because of what my son Jesus did right on your behalf. Imparted. We talk about imparted righteousness. This is what we're talking about here. Again, I'll give you the definition. We're going to write it down. Then we're going to come back. We're going to pick it all apart and give Bible verses to explain it. Imparted righteousness is what God does through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit after justification, working in the Christian to enable and empower the process of sanctification. All right? So the imparted righteousness, this, is where we are sanctified. All right? So imparted righteousness is what allows us to be sanctified, to enter into the process of sanctification. You're still looking at all four of these words going, hmm, okay, and you're like, okay, yeah, okay, yes, maybe. I'm going to give you two more words that you're going to go, okay, now what was a little foggy is becoming even more clear, all right? In regards to righteousness, again, these are two sides of the same coin that is righteousness. Imputed righteousness is where we become justified, and this is where Jesus is our Savior. All right? Raise your hand if you just heard a word that you know what it means. <laughs> okay, good deal. Hey, trust me, we're going to get there. All right? 
That's his imputed righteousness. Imparted righteousness, this is where we become sanctified. We enter into this process of sanctification. This is where we begin to experience Jesus as Lord. See, at Savior, I am now out of hell free. I have now had my debt paid. At Lord, though, I am now surrendering to his will for my life. Lord is kingship. Lord is is him as being the one who dictates what I do. I am no longer the Lord and the leader and the ruler of my life. Now that is Jesus. All right? So we've got these three things, okay? Imparted, sanctified, he's Lord. When he's imputed, that's where I'm justified, and that's where he becomes Savior. I'm laying all this out there. Because the only way you will ever experience sanctification, the only way you'll ever experience Jesus as Lord of your life, the only way you'll ever get the imparted righteousness of God is if you get this side first. This is where it starts. Now let's go there. Let's talk about this imputed righteousness. Trust me, it's going to make sense. Lean in here. Don't let me lose you. Imputed righteousness. The key to understanding this is actually right there in the middle of the word. Put. This is righteousness that has now been put on you that you could have never been put on yourself. This is righteousness that has been put inside your life. And again, the breastplate of righteousness, that's our heart. That's our core. But how was your heart pre-Jesus? Jacked up, messed up, as awful as it could have been. But now a new heart has been put inside of you. So I love what Galatians 2, starting in verse 20, going to verse 21 says. You got a Bible? Look at this. Again, God's word is going to explain this way better than I can. Galatians 2, start with verse 20, going to go to verse 21. What does it mean to have something new put in me? What does it mean to be a new creation? And looked at as righteous before a holy God. Galatians 2, 20 and 21. Paul's writing this, the church in Galatia. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's Paul's way of saying, Paul who? I'm not, this life is not Paul living anymore. This life is Jesus living through me. That's at the core, at the heart, at the very aspect of who I am. It is no longer this sinful, jacked up, fallen from birth person. It is now Jesus Christ himself living through me at the core, at the heart. As the Bible defines heart, who I really am. Who I really am is not Trent Shoemake anymore. Who I really am is Jesus Christ on the inside. That's who I really am. He says, Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh... That's in this steel body, this continuing on. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Read that again. That's the beauty of the gospel. All wrapped up in that verse, man. Who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I don't, and he goes on, I, I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, what he's saying there, if I could have been looked at and deemed righteous by God through keeping all the rules and regulations, like the church maybe you grew up in, and that's what they said, like the only way you get to God. Now again, that's every other world religion, is you stink, do better, and then you get Jesus. Or you stink, do better, then you get God or karma or nirvana. Or you don't get to come back as a squirrel, you get to come back as something cooler, and then eventually you get this really great state. That's not our 
religion. That's not what it is. He says, if I could got righteousness through law, then Christ died for no purpose. And we have a God who would never send Christ to do what he did for no reason at all. Another verse I love that really helps me understand this is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. You've heard this maybe before. It says, for our sake, he, that's God, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, underline that, circle that, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So when we talk about this imputed righteousness, it is not just a one-way imputation. It is actually what theologians would call double imputation. What that means is, is I take on the holiness, beauty, and majesty of Christ so that when God looks at me, he's, and again, through faith, when he looks at me, he sees his son, Jesus. That is that imputed righteousness now coming to me. That's one way. The other way, the other side of that coin is Jesus is imputed with my sin, my shame, my guilt, and he then pays the penalty that all of my sin, my guilt, and my shame deserves. That's what happens at the moment of salvation for a believer. And this word, justified, okay? This is where we now can stand before a holy God justified. And, and to make that really simple for you to hopefully under, uh, be able to understand and, and chew on a little bit. Justified. Think about it like this. It is just as if I never sinned. So what does it mean to be justified by God? It means that he looks at you and he looks at you as just as if you have never sinned. Just as if I have never sinned. Now I know some of you right now watching this or sitting in a room that blows your mind. To know that through faith in Jesus, that when he looks at you right now. And again, if you have not yet put your faith in Christ, friend, I love you. I deeply care for you. I lay my heart out on the altar of God this week praying for you. But if you have not put faith in God, you are not justified. And it is not just as if you have never sinned before holy God. There is still a price that you are on the hook for at this point in regards to your sin. And the Bible makes it very clear that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And my hope and my prayer is that through this you'd understand what has been done and what has been paid for you. But at the moment of our salvation, Jesus comes in, trades his life for ours so that we can now stand before God. Because here's the the reality. Someone had to pay for what you did wrong so it could be made right. In order for you to be acquitted, somebody had to pay that penalty. And that's why Jesus, who was the Christ, had to be treated like the criminal that you and I are. Guys, this is the most lopsided, scandalous exchange in all of history. There's nothing more lopsided than this. And this is what happens at the moment that we believe and trust in Jesus. This is where he becomes our savior because we could have never been justified by living out the law and the rules on our own. Paul, in great Pauline fashion, he explains by bragging about how seemingly righteous he was on the outside in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Again, big chunk of scripture. 
I want you to go through this slow. I want you to see this on the screen. Pull your Bible out of here at home. If you want to understand what this righteousness stuff is, I want you to see this verse here in Philippians. Look at what Paul says as he's explaining what this imputed, given, put inside of you, now justified by Christ, righteousness is. Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Paul says this, But whatever gain I had, he's talking about by whatever gain I had, by doing all those really religious things, by memorizing half of the entire Bible, by tithing this amount, by having this perfect attendance, by, by doing all these things that made everybody else around me think I was super righteous, Whatever gain I had in that, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. Now, that word rubbish there is a word that's really fun to say, so we're going to say it together. It's called scubala. All right, say that with me. One, two, three, scubala. Scubala. Now, Rubbish is a kind of a soft translation of scubula. Scubula is better translated as crap. Not even poop, but crap. Now, I need you to get a mental image here. Not of crap, but in a second you will. What Paul is saying here, you've got to understand his theology that he's trying to present to these people so that we can understand it as well. He is saying that in the eyes of all the religiosity of everything that has existed, I was the top dog. I was crushing it. If everybody was going to look and say, who's the most religious and righteous person around, they would have looked at Paul and said that that was who it was. And Paul is saying to the church here in Philippians, he's saying, if I was to take that righteousness and show up at heaven's gates, and Jesus was to ask me, hey, Paul, why do you think I should let you in? And I was to show that to him, it would be as if I had a steamy pile of feces to say, this is why I should get into heaven. And for us, when we think that our standing with God has to do with our ability to keep his laws, rules, and regulation, that somehow he loves us more or less because of the rules we keep or don't, it is as if we are standing before him saying, God, check out what I've got. It may look good here on earth, but in regards to a holy, perfect, righteous God, you are handling crap. It's not going to get you anywhere. And so Paul essentially says here, trade your crap for the love of Christ. He says, in order that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, not works, faith. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Beautiful, thick, meat passage. Go home this week and chew on that. Do not just be the type of Christian who eats on Sunday. Go home and take the meat that is on this bone that I have left there for you. Paul explains it a different way. Romans 3, 21 through 27. I told you I am not good at explaining this. I'm going to let the Bible do it, and the Holy Spirit's going to help you see it. Romans 3, go to Romans 3 if you will. Romans 3, 21 through 26. Paul's writing again. He says, but now the righteousness of God, now again, righteousness, being right in the eyes of God, being in a true and pure standing with him, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That means the law is not what made righteousness happen. Love did. 
through Jesus. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Your good works would never get you to God. All have sinned and fallen short. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Gift. Got to receive it. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Basically just means payment. It's a big word. It means payment. By his blood. To be received by faith. That is to show God's righteousness. Because of his divine forbearance. That word forbearance means patience. Because of God's divine patience. He has passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Paul is, he lays out at the end of that verse a lot of words around God being just. And I need you to understand that in regards to you and how you came into, like once you put your faith and your trust in Christ, like if you have done that, what God did not do is from his heavenly throne look down and say, I love you so much. I love you so much that even though I am a holy and just God, who over and over again in my word says that I have nothing to do with evil, that I detest evil practices, that I have uh, this inability to be around or associated with evil because I am that good and that holy, but because I love you so much, I'm willing to lower the standard and let you in. See, that's not what happens. See, we have a God who has an unchanging character. And God, if he did that, he would be unjust if he let the payment for sin just sit there. But he remains just and continues to stay congruent with his character as a just and holy God by sending Jesus to be the justice, propitiation, and payment for our sins so that we now have a savior okay and all of this happens at the moment we put our faith in jesus that is what happens at the moment of salvation the imputed righteousness now comes into our lives so that when jesus looks down and he sees you he does not see your sins mistakes when he looks down and he sees you he sees his son saying they're mine my blood has covered that one my blood has covered that one and my blood has covered that one it's good we're good when jesus looks at you he sees what his son has done for you so that's what happens at the moment of salvation. But wait, there's more. If that's what happens at the moment of salvation, goodness gracious, what happens next? I want to show you what happens next. Paul, when he started this book of Ephesians, he made it really clear what happens at the moment of salvation. In Ephesians 1, verse 13 to 14, if God Bible, go there. It's going to be on the screens if you don't have one. He says, and you who also were included with Christ when you heard the message of truth. So he's talking to people, he's saying, and you, once you've put your faith in Christ, you believe in Christ, you've now received this imputed righteousness, the gospel of your salvation. Again, salvation, that's where you were justified. When you believed and you were marked in him with a seal. And this is where you got to lean in. You were marked in him with a seal. That's not a seal, that's a seal as in a promise. Like it is closed up, it is contained, a seal. The promised Holy Spirit. So at the moment of salvation, 
what's happening in the lives of a believer when you put your faith and your trust in Christ. One, you are justified from a holy God. And then that very same God puts his spirit inside of you marks that you are truly now a part of his family. You are now a part of this kingdom and gives us this seal that is God in spirit form living inside of you. Now that that is the truest part of you is God's Holy Spirit living inside of you. Verse 14, this Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, this place that you have in the family of God by faith until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Now, if you're righteous, and you have this Holy Spirit. Why, why do we need a Holy Spirit if I'm already deemed righteous in God's eyes? Why do I need to have this Holy Spirit to, to be able to help me do these things? Like if I'm already in good standing with God, if I already got like heaven, that's where I'm going. If I already have this, it's promised, my inheritance is there. Why do I need a Holy Spirit? Because imparted righteousness wants you to be sanctified. Sanctified. Here's what it means to be sanctified. To be sanctified means to begin to live a life of congruence. To where your life matches up with both sides of the coin. Where you have received the imputed righteousness. You are justified in front of Christ. He is your Savior. But now what has been put in you begins to become part of every single second that you are alive it has been put in but has it become part of who you are has god this is what paul is after i'm not even going to go into the spiritual warfare side of this if you can understand both of these coins of righteousness you'll be able to stand ground you'll be able to do whatever you need to do against the enemy when it becomes part of you see sanctified is living a congruent life congruent is where each side of who you say you are matches with the other side. Eugene Peterson, he's a guy who paraphrased uh, the, the whole entire Bible in this thing called the message. And talking about congruence, he said this. He said, the Christian life is a lifelong practice of attending to the details of congruence. Congruence between ends and means. Congruence between what we do and the way we do it. Congruence between what is written in Scripture and our living out of what is written. Congruence between a ship and its prow. Congruence between the preaching and the living. Congruence between a sermon and what is lived in both preacher and congregation. The congruence of the word made flesh in Jesus and what is lived out in our flesh as his people. So when we get that imparted righteousness, it is now becoming a part of us and now sanctification can actually happen. Sanctification is a process. Once you receive the righteousness of Christ, you enter into this process from now until when you go home, to when you die, that is called sanctification. Big Christian word. Basically what it means is to set something apart for its original purpose. So what this means here is when I take this pen and I underline sanctification with this dry erase marker, I am sanctifying it by using it for its created and designed 
purpose. And there are so many, man, this is one of the things that breaks my heart, I believe breaks the heart of Christ, is there are so many people, so many people who have put their faith in Christ, who have had his righteousness put in them, who are now justified by God and have him as a savior. But there are so many people who call themselves and claim to be Christian, who are not living out their God-given, God-designed purpose here on earth. This is a life, this is a Christianity that only believes in just heaven, that forgets about the reality that we are still here on earth. And part of the Lord's prayer was your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And sanctification, guys, is where that happens. It is where we are used for the purpose that God originally intended for you. And I need you to hear this. Wherever you're at, God has a purpose for your life. That there is things, that there are many things that he wants you to live out and to experience. And this is where we fight against an enemy who wants to tell everybody in here that you don't have a purpose. That you are too messed up, too jacked up to be able to live out your God-given purpose as a husband, as a father, as a mother, as a son, as a manager, as a wife, as a small group leader. He says, you are not justified enough with God to be able to live a sanctified life. That's how the enemy comes after. That's how he seeks to attack us. But Paul made it very clear that this taking up of the breastplate of righteousness is not this kind of righteousness. This righteousness has been put inside of you. You are now justified by God. He, you have Jesus as your Savior. When Paul is talking about putting on the breastplate of righteousness, this is what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, friend, you're saved. The war is won by what Jesus has done. But in the meantime, friend, you're still in the midst of a battle, in a battle that needs you to live out a sanctified life because God has chosen me and you, people of God, to actually be the ones who go and rescue people who are prisoners in this war. See, when Jesus gave his blood for us on the cross, that blood was the most in, incredible payment that could ever be. It's the most powerful thing that can ever been paid for. But what you need to know is when we in faith put our trust in Jesus and what his blood was sufficient to do, part of that peace treaty between us and God now is that we will go and live out as peacemakers from a world that is at odds with God. And that's why we have to walk in the sanctification where we have to see Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. We all want Jesus as Savior, but man, we have a hard time with lordship. Because inside of every human, human heart, there's a throne and there's a cross. And you have to choose which one of those you're going to be on. There's not a whole lot of lords. They're allowed to be on crosses. There was one. And he's not on a, a cross anymore. He is a name at which every knee will bow and every tongue confess. He is the Lord. And it's in our best interest in this battleground that is life to say, Jesus, you are Lord. You're Lord of my money. The thing that really, and again, we'll go here. What did Jesus say in his word was the thing that was at the biggest risk of becoming an idol of our heart? When he talked about our heart and what it would worship and what it would not, he didn't talk about lust. He didn't talk about saying cuss words. He talked about money. And I would believe in 2020, in the world that we live in here, there is no greater enemy after your heart 
as far as lordship goes, than money. To be able to say, I'm going to do what I want to do with what I've got. And when Jesus comes into a heart, when he comes into all of who you are, he wants to be all of who you are, not just some pieces. Not just the I come to church you. He wants to be the on Friday night you. He wants to be all of all of your heart. Not just the little decisions. One of my professors in college, I'll never forget what he said. It's changed the way I do everything that our family does with money. He said every decision is a spending, every spending decision is a spiritual decision. That changes things. So the question becomes. Have you put on this righteousness? Many of you in this room have put on the imputed, God-given, justified before him righteousness. Some of you have not. And today I would hope that would be the day that you do that. That you say, I know if I die today, I'm going to stand before God. And I don't want to show him my pile of crap about my attempts to be holy in front of him. I now understand that Jesus became and paid the penalty for my sin. And made it just as if I had never sinned. And I want to accept that love. I want to accept that. And through faith, I want to be justified and righteous before a holy God. If that's you, I want you to come and put your faith in Christ. I want you to, we're getting ready to do this in a minute. After this, you know, the last song we sing, I'm going to be baptizing somebody who's making that declaration, making that plea to say, I'm trading in my old life and I'm being buried in that old life and being raised up to now live. As Paul said, not Paul anymore. The old me is gone and the new me has come and we're going to see that on full display the question for you in this room if you're a believer in jesus though is where are you leaving your heart susceptible where are you refusing to let jesus be lord so that you can live out the sanctification because you have been imparted with his righteousness through the deposit of his holy spirit to walk out what he has now made a part of you and only you know that and only you can find that my prayer is that this week you would go there and dive in to experience what he has for you. As the band comes back out and begins to lead us in a song, the song is called Reckless Love, and many of you have uh, possibly heard this song. I, I think there is no greater song that puts on full display what this imputed righteousness is, this reality that there is a God who loved us so much that in our wondering, in our sin, in our failures, in our shortcomings, he came to us, he ran after us. There was nothing, there was no distance that we could go to that made him go, you know what, you know what, I'm, I'm sick of you. I'm tired. You, you've kept running and running and running, and I'm tired of running after you. No, no, we have a God who says, there is no mountain that I'm not willing to go up to find you. There's no lie that you believed about yourself that you've told yourself, and there's no lie that other people have told you that you have believed about yourself that I'm not willing to break and tear down. There's no wall that you could build up and insulate yourself in and try to protect yourself. Oh, I don't want to get hurt again. No, I, I'm a good lover. I'm, I, I'm the lover of your soul. I'm the creator of your soul. You don't have to worry about being vulnerable and open and honest with me. I will love you. And you can trust me to love you well. My prayer today is that you would come to him, that you would meet with him, and you'll take up the righteous love that he died to give you. Let's pray. Jesus, meet your people where they are. Speak to them in deep within their hearts and show them, God, that there is no length that you would not go to to show them your love, your grace, and your mercy. It's in your name we pray. Amen.